Okay, should we get going? Five past three, nearly, nearly on time. Uh, this is a, the final session on creative work, and um, as ever, three speakers. Uh, so first, I'm going to introduce Dave, who's right behind us, going to talk about uh, creative labour, and uh, I believe something to do with the DCMS, possibly. Uh, so I'll just hand over. Thanks, Justin. Uh, I'm afraid I'm yet another speaker who isn't, isn't going to speak about what I signal I would speak about in the abstract. But as you only received them today, that isn't too much of a, a letdown, is it? But one of the reasons I wanted to change it was um, that, as I think many of you will know, last Friday, I think, the DCMS, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, the UK National Government Department that deals with cultural policy and lots of the other issues we've been talking about today, uh, finally published its long-awaited document that comes out of what's been called the Creative Economy Programme, which um, is really the latest episode in the 10 or 20-year history that we've been discussing today. It was set up, I think, in uh, 2005, so it's two and a half years of work. Uh, there was a document... Um, produced last year by the Work Foundation, this guy Will Hutton's organisation, which has been referred to a couple of times today, uh, staying ahead. Um, um, that was seen as signalling what might come out at the end of the Creative Economy Programme. This uh, document, Creative Britain, released last week, is, um, uh, is the biggest statement so far uh, on the part of government about its intentions with regard to creative industry policy, now called creative economy policy. So I thought it was opportune to talk about, uh, about those, those issues, but I'm still going to be talking about creative labour. One of the most important aspects of, of creative industries policies is the, the political recognition and social centrality that they give to forms of work that have traditionally been considered marginal or exceptional. Creative industries policies explicitly aim at increasing not only the economic contribution that film, television, music and so on make, but also the number of jobs they provide. And I think this makes it uh, important to ask, what kinds of jobs are these? And yet that question has hardly been addressed in creative industry policy, either at the national or regional levels. There have been various studies of artistic labour markets and they've generated some pretty clear findings. In a nutshell, artists tend to hold multiple jobs. There's a predominance of self-employed or freelance workers. Work's irregular, contracts are short-term and there's little job protection. Career prospects are uncertain Earnings are very unequal. Artists are younger than other workers. And the workforce appears to be growing. Now, the DCM, the Department of Culture, Media and Sports, definition of creative industries, as we've heard a couple of times today, is a very broad one, encompassing software, design, advertising, architecture, as well as arts and crafts. It's a kind of, uh, you know, it's interesting that it was associated with 
cool Britannia, you know, that horrible cliche back in the 90s uh, when, you know, if you look at it from some angles, it has as much to do with the antique roadshow or computer nerds. But I think it's fair to, to think of these industries obviously brought together out of political expediency and, you know, n- n- no one could blame the people involved for, for, for doing so, um, as generally involving, centrally involving, artistic labour. Um, this is perhaps where the question of, you know, where do the artists go? This is where we maybe begin to address it. Of course, they involve other kinds of labour too, uh, notably craft and, and technical labour. Um, and in many cases, yeah, it's important to think, that, think of craft and technical labour as... Um, existing alongside artistic labour in the creative or cultural industries, but also to some extent being vertically differentiated. There's this system of above the line and below the line that runs in a lot of cultural industries, where it tends to be the artistic labour that gets uh, accredited. There are very successful craft and and technical uh, workers in the industries, but, uh, but there is some inequality across those things, across those divisions. But the important point for me is that those related jobs are linked to artistic labour because there too there's job insecurity, uncertain prospects, unequal earnings, problems of access. So it's across um, the, the creative industries, these, these problems of, of, of work. Other more qualitative forms of evidence are accruing, besides the artistic labour market studies that I've just discussed. Um, other qualitative forms of evidence are accruing about the nature of creative labour. We'll hear from Roz in a minute, but my colleague Sarah Baker and I are currently writing up a project based on uh, interviews and ethnographic work across three industries, television, music and magazine journalism, and across a number of genres in each industry. One of our aims is to investigate... Uh, both the the positive and the negative aspects of creative work and to examine how high levels of personal commitment coexist with high levels of insecurity and stress. We're trying to examine what work insecurity means for creative workers who love their jobs. Not all of them love it, of course, but lots of them do. I don't want to go into that in detail just now. I just want to give one... one, uh, brief example which is from an interview with an actor uh, who who was in the process of becoming a writer uh, and doing fairly well Uh, he says I've never been as successful as an actor till I started writing and so acting didn't matter and I walk into a room now for a job and it just pours off me it doesn't matter and for some people it's the opposite when I was auditioning for a play last year now here he means when I was auditioning actors, he was as a writer auditioning actors who were coming in, actors would come in and you could see it just pouring off them how much they wanted this job, it's just confidence and it just speaks volumes I think actors are likely to gain work then when they exude confidence, they have to want the job badly but somehow not show it that's like many jobs But more than in many industries, there's an oversupply of labour, as we know, in the creative industries. So that tendency to show vulnerability and therefore make what you want to happen less likely to come about becomes exaggerated. 
This becomes internalised in actors and other creative workers in something like the following form. Only by not wanting the desired goal of success will that desire be fulfilled, but then the desire itself wouldn't exist, taking away the very fulfilment sought in the first place. Or rather, you need to want it just the right amount so the excess of desire doesn't stop you. Precarious cultural work is often about finding that balance. And such experiences, we've found, can be uncovered across a wide range of creative jobs at different levels and within different genres. Now, whether or not you think this is the right way to approach that question of the experience of the insecurity of creative work... It seems to me, taken together, there's clear evidence that creative labour markets, centred on artistic labour but going beyond artistic labour, are riddled with problems, and that this therefore has implications for policies that argue for a radical expansion of the creative industries under present conditions without paying attention to those conditions. Yet the problems of creative labour markets, as I've said, gone pretty much unacknowledged in creative industries policy documents. When the Work Foundation was commissioned to produce a key report, the one I mentioned earlier, that would inform the government's creative economy programme, many observers were intrigued. After all, the Work Foundation, under its chief executive, Will Hutton, campaigns against injustice at work and seeks to promote good work involving fair pay, control over the pace of work, protection against exploitation, and other, other elements. See their website. As it turned out, the Work Foundation's report for DCMS, Staying Ahead, published late last year, hardly mentioned working conditions in the creative economy. It may be, though, that the Work Foundation's concerns have indirectly permeated the DCMS's creative economy programme in the, in the Creative Britain document that was published last week. This acknowledges, though only for a sentence, some of the problems surrounding labour markets associated with creative or cultural industries. This is the way the document puts it. For too many at the moment, the chance to start a career in the creative industries means moving to London, working for free, or knowing someone who can get you a foot in the door. Here at least is some recognition of inequality, exploitation and the closed nature of the networks around cultural production, or so it would seem. Creative Britain, this document, outlines six commitments to address these problems. And if you don't mind, I'm going to go through them because, um, um, I mean... Policy documents are not very interesting a lot of the time. Um, I'm doing you a service by <laughs> summarising the sections of Creative Britain, at least as they are relevant to the question of, of labour. Um, and I, I was discussing this earlier with one or two colleagues. Uh, I'm not naive enough to think that policy documents are the equivalent of policy but I do think they are important and interesting in their own right Okay, the, the, the first commitment made under the question of, of, of labour in, in the Creative Britain document is the establishment of a talent pathways programme 
Now, this links up um, a measure that was announced in December that some of you, certainly people who are based in Britain, may well have noticed in the media. This headline-grabbing measure of a, a five hours a week provision of quality culture for kids in schools. Um, it takes that idea that was announced separately under uh, some um, children's um, set of measures um, and it links it up with careers advice. Um, but I think there's a sleight of hand because in contrast to that emphasis on quality culture in schools is a strong emphasis in the outline of the Talent Pathways programme on the need for... That on, on how the creative industries actually needs m children, school leavers, with IT and math skills. The section is mainly about IT and maths and, and engineering. Um, and the, um, there are people here who are perhaps cl closer to the policy process to me, but reading between the lines, it feels like this is an agenda very much determined by what in Britain are called the sector skills councils. These are uh, 25 bodies that are set up to develop the skills that employers need. And there are, I think, three that are most relevant to the creative <coughs> industries. Uh, the skill set for um, the audiovisual industries, there's cultural and creative skills, or is it creative and cultural skills for music and performing arts and so on, and skill fast for fashion. Uh, you can correct me after if I've got any of that wrong. Um, the, 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 the sector skills councils seem very, very influential in the debate at the moment about cultural labour and about training. But what the document is promising, on top of the, 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 the five hours a week, uh, is essentially a, a careers advice website. The second measure is an intention to work with its non-departmental public bodies, the DCMS's non-departmental public bodies, which I think, it doesn't say it, but means the, the, the sector skills councils to promote a, div a more diverse workforce. Diverse. What are you thinking of? You're maybe thinking ethnic, cultural diversity. Well, the report sends a clear signal here that this is about social and cultural diversity because it links, it introduces its discussion of diversity to, quote, the choreography of Akram Khan and a reference to evidence that internships in the creative industries are not distributed evenly across different socio-economic groups. So, a, a, a sign of a commitment to diversity. But when you read the actual discussion of how diversity will be achieved, it emerges that what's meant is diversity in skills. <coughs> and here too, the document speaks with forked tongue. Um, it begins by recognising the tremendous role that higher education has played in establishing the UK's position as a global leader in creative industries. And, you know, you work for a university and you go, wow, they're praising, praising universities. <laughs> Great. Um, and then it adds to that praise by discussing how higher education has not stood still, showing this through examples drawn mainly from the Skillset Media Academy network, including Goldsmiths, Bournemouth and Ravensburg. 
yet it says there is an appetite for more, quote, unquote. And apparently, many university, quote, many university and college leaders have asked for a review of their relationship with government, the Arts Council and Creative Industries. The next sentence begins with the words, the Leach Report stressed the need for higher education to do more to meet the needs of business. Which is absolutely true. It did. The Leach Report, it was a, uh, a report that appeared in December 2006, headed by Sandy Leach, the former chief executive of Zurich Financial Services, which was commissioned by Gordon Brown when he was Minister for Finance in Britain, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, and which places extremely strong emphasis on the need for education to be reshaped around the needs of employers. So that is what is meant by diversity. A greater diversity of higher education providing a more diverse set of services to business. The third commitment is to conduct research to ensure that academia is equipping students with skills to make the most effective contribution they can to the creative economy. This, the document says, will also explore how to develop links between universities and the creative and cultural industries, which, you know, of course we we, we want. Um, And that research will be conducted by the Art, Design and Media Subject Centre based at the University of Brighton. They're an organisation that produces famously these newsletters that nobody reads, extremely glossy and expensive (laughs) newsletters. Um, And, um, you know, it it has to be said from the higher education point of view, they're not an organisation that one would immediately trust to provide research that would make um, very useful connections between universities and, and creative industries. Um, the fourth, fifth, fourth commitment is uh, we will encourage employers and skills providers to set up groundbreaking new innovative places of learning. Three existing centres are mentioned, including the new Pervasive Media Studio in Bristol. I don't know if there's anyone from Bristol here. Um, and again, Skillset Media Academy Network. And then the five more of these uh, centres Uh, are said to be on the way Um, then there's a a commitment to explore the impact of a brand new academic hub which means that uh, there will be a tracking study of the University of the Arts London's outreach programmes for schools and the final commitment is along with the previously announced five hours a week of quality culture for kids in schools the one that got most of the media attention the commitment to create 5,000 creative sector apprenticeships in partnership with various prestigious institutions such as Tate Liverpool and Universal Music Group. Um, lots of these institutions are actually public sector institutions, uh, very, very relatively few are private sector ones, which is interesting in itself, I think. So... Um, uh, this, this is how the DCMS after two and a half years, proposes to deal with the structural problems of creative labour markets. Now, I, I don't... Um, I'm just aware that... Uh, I'm trying not to be 
too satirical. I think, you know, I'm, I'm simply reporting what they say, you know, I've heard people laughing. Uh, uh, I understand that, you know, it is a grubby, pragmatic business putting together these documents, uh, as John was rightly pointing out this morning. I, I, I don't, I genuinely don't blame the people who are putting together this document for the, 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 um, um, the limitations on how it deals with these labour markets because actually it seems to me that uh, policy is in a place where you couldn't at the moment, you couldn't but I still think it's very important that we point that out How does all this fit uh, I'm moving towards a, a clause here how does, uh, how does this fit with creative industries policy since 1998 um, I think it's consistent with it um, I, um, I agree with the view that relates creative industries policy to uh, inf information society and knowledge economy thinking um, and that's apparent in the very strong provisions on intellectual property that are also part of, of the Creative Britain document in another section information society thinking has been around in various forms since the 1960s but by the 1990s was increasingly informed by neoliberal endogenous growth theory this was famously referred to by Gordon Brown in a speech in the House of Commons and you know, he, was, uh, he had the piss taken out of him for being a pointy headed intellectual uh, this was in 1994 um, but it's important this theory it, uh, it really has influenced a lot of government policy uh, in culture, education and even health over the last uh, 15 years. It holds that national competitive advantage accrues to those countries with the most developed institutional structures supporting innovation. Essential to this is the provision of suitably trained human capital. This is uh, clothed in a certain language, you know, often it will be accompanied by in business people are, are our most prized asset. But ultimately, it's an economic theory that mortars uh, at least some of this stuff. However, more than in previous years, creative industries policy is now linked with developments in other governmental departments besides DCMS. I think it always was, and John was talking about that very interestingly this morning. Uh, it seems to me that more than ever now, notably the Department for Education and Skills, and what used to be the Department of Trade and Industry, now Department for Business, Enterprise and, and Regulatory Reform, but also the Treasury, which commissioned the Leach Review, um, which I mentioned before, and the Cox Review, which was on creativity in business. So there's a kind of network of policy around creativity that goes way beyond cultural policy, and I think it's absolutely vital to recognise that. Um, so... Government policy on creative labour, as manifest in the Creative Economy Programme, pays lip service to structural problems, but is driven almost entirely by the aim of developing skills in the name of national economic competitiveness. Um, it's backed up by the Co Cox Report and the Leach Reports, uh, and, and a whole array of reports, presentation of the emerging economies, notably, of course, China in, and India, as, as a kind of the threat from them as a disciplinary device. Um, global competition emerges in COPs and in Creative Britain as a device for hunting down areas of creative autonomy in UK society and bringing them under the discipline of the market. And in that respect, it's an extension of the neoliberal policies that have dominated media and culture since the 1980s. 
Um, but I, th- I think because of its increased emphasis on education, it's, it's a move into new areas. Now, just, just quickly to say that, um, uh, uh, in a way, Kate's already said it for me. It seems to me that what's happened in this shift is that arts, arts policy has become unmoored from cultural policy more generally. And so, back, back in November or December, was it a, a, a widely heralded report by this guy, Mike Master, who used to run the Edinburgh Festival, was released. Kate talked about it this morning. It was about against number crunches, against the audit culture. Who could disagree with that? And it posited excellence and more respect for artists. And it goes alongside a wholesale shutdown of small local arts organisations and a privileging of the big ten organisations that will have funding guaranteed for ten years. Okay, So alongside this kind of network of creativity, there's now a separation off of arts policy, which was much more integrated in the, uh, in the 1998 to 2001 creative industries period. Right, very briefly, what are the implications of all this for how we understand creative industries policy and cultural policy more generally? Um, should we despair at this? Well, yes, of course we must. But then, after we've despaired, we need to think hard uh, to find spaces of hope within the present conjuncture and to seek to move beyond it. That five hours of week, week of, of, of quality culture for, for kids in schools uh, is just a pilot scheme at the moment uh, in ten regions. Uh, it's signalled as being for the gifted and talented and children with special needs. But it's one of those places where it may be possible for progressive educationalists to capture some of that five hours a week, to steal a little bit of the agenda back from the skills councils. And who knows, the children may even be taken to see performances that mercilessly satirise the privileging of of economic and material success over collective quality of life. I'll leave it there. Okay, any questions? Okay, um, my question is... um, well, as you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm not from the UK. Yeah. So it's an outsider question. Sure. Um, but I'm wondering how lobbying works around the development of policy. Because it seems like all day long we've been hearing policy is a matter of um, it's written by government, academics respond to it, maybe there's, there's think tanks. But, um, yeah, I'm wondering, yeah, what is the role of lobbying in the development of policy? And, um, yeah, is our examples of um, lobbying coming, say, from more from the bottom up, say, and specific to cultural policy, um, say, coming from cre- creative workers or associations of creative workers? It's a great, great question. I think <laughs> lobbying is, is so much of what it's about, and there, there are people here who are much more qualified to talk about, um, about the, um, the complexities and intricacies of lobbying than I am. But I do know something about this in relation to media policy Um, for example um, and I'm going to try and keep it brief because it is is, is such an important one that I could ramble Um, it seems to me that there's decreasing scope for bottom up lobbying as you put it which is a a way of putting it I would agree with Um, and just 
to give one example of that is the way that um, the um, the Communications Act the last Communications Act in Britain the lobbying around that now it wasn't entirely closed off there were groups that were allowed in to represent say the interests of, of the NGOs in Britain um, but um, unless somebody knows better than I do the, the unions uh, the various unions that might have an interest were given very little say and of course unions in Britain now have very little credibility amongst policy makers on the whole it varies from sector to sector um, so up in the EU, in Britain uh, and in America, I mean there's been some tremendous studies of the lack of, uh, um, of opportunity for democratic lobbying in the states around communications policy um, I would say I would say some pretty worrying tendencies and that was you and then yeah, you and then yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think it's well. First, as an observation, I mean, I, I think it's very curious that so that you, as you say, they pay this lip service to the um, the structural pro- the, the structural problems in terms of the problems with the with the kind of artistic labor market. On the other hand, it seems like they're largely making the, the argument that people are not skilled enough, and that people need more more education and skills and training rather than looking at, you know, say the system of, ex- of exploitation and, and and so on. And I think that's very curious, and but kind of not surprising. Um, but I guess, I, and so that was one observation. But another thing I was wondering about is that you, you mentioned, um, you know, all these internships being created at public institutions, and I'm wondering, um, I'm, I'm just wondering how that relates to the conditions of the staff there. Um, does it mean there will be layoffs? Um, I'm, but also to sort of raise larger questions about free internships, because I think, I mean, I've, I've, I guess maybe anecdotally I've heard more and more stories of people spending years in internships, and this never, never actually leads to paid employment. So I'm just wondering where, where the kind of the creation of the internships, where you feel that stands in relation to kind of, I don't know, like labor laws or, or, or like what will happen at these workplaces. Yeah, well, um, great, great question. And you're making me realize that, um, that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not certain about the, the status of the term apprenticeships. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another way. These 5,000 creative apprenticeships are another way in which the leech agenda, which mm-hmm. set a target of 500,000 apprenticeships in per year by 2020, you know, the leech report, the one I mentioned that was mm-hmm. you know, about skills, that I think has hugely influenced this report. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that is the policy environment in which this report is created. Um, whereas apprenticeships... Now, what these apprenticeships yeah, mean yeah. is a bit uncertain. Of course, we think of internships. Um, if it is, then yes, of, of course, there will be questions of exploitation. Um, I just wanted to say, though, that you know that sentence I quoted um, that does recognise these problems. My, my sense is that a lot of work will have gone in on the part of some good people to try and get even that one sentence in. So I'm not trying to simplify it and say this is hypocrisy. They put that sentence in. It's, you know, I, I see po- policy as this kind of battle, this struggle to reclaim a little bit of ground for certain interests over others, but a losing battle in many ways for certain interests here. Okay, more strikes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think what that's great, but I think one of the difficulties of policy in this area, and it, it's striking me as a new force doing these interviews with, with, with artists and fine artists, I just don't do it at the moment, 
um, is the degree to which exploitation means self-exploitation. And I think that's, that's not only in the cultural industry, but it's very, very pronounced in the cultural industry. Um, as a kind of sidebar, I actually think that the apprenticeships are going to be paid and the document does make a statement about why they should be paid right. because of the growth of free labour as an entry criteria into these labour markets. So I actually think that it's is quite a, a progressive that. move. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Does it really? Yeah. Um, so it's unless it's been... Mm. Well, anyway, I think it's... Like, I think that's okay. But I think one of the difficulties for policy is this issue of, of self-exploitation, mm. which policy can't... Public policy finds it quite hard to touch. One of the things <laughs> I really notice about talking to artists, it's because of massive overproduction, of course, of, of fine arts graduates. So they do find their way into various kind of things, including the kind of classic they're working with waiters, which isn't really strictly true, but often doing other things to supplement their artistic practice. And what's really striking is, is the feelings of uh, guilt that they describe from not spending time doing artistic work <coughs> and in doing money earning work, or if they've decided not to give up being an artist and go into being a merchant banker or, you know, whatever else. They describe feelings of loss and guilt and, and, and these kind of sort of psychological costs. And I think that's really problematic from a kind of, culture, from a kind of public policy point of view. I mean, Andrew Ross's phrase about, you know, this tradition of, kind of sacrificial labour, mm-hmm. it seems so deeply imbued in the culture that these people have absorbed. Mm. That yeah. being an artist is a serious, important thing to do, and anything that takes you away from that. Yeah. It's not a good thing to do, and this is not a labour market that's going to find it very easy to agitate for better conditions. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, absolutely. And um, one of the reasons I decided not to talk about what I was going to talk about today was because it was echoing things I talked about three months ago, and I looked at the delegate list and saw there was lots of people who already heard it. And but one of the things that both you and I were talking about at the day we, me and Justin, organised at Leeds in October was uh, was precisely this problem of self exploitation, wasn't it? That uh, um, it's um, it's no longer useful to think of a kind of. Um, only in terms of a set of employers who are out to extract profit from, from labourers. The, 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 the system has shifted and moved on in, a, in such a way across many industries that people have internalised the, the love for their work. Um, and in that respect, artistic creative labour is unsurprisingly offered as a, a model for work it, 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 more generally in society. Um, and that's why I think qualitative work, ethnographic work, is very important in registering some of the psychological problems, as you say, uh, guilt and grief and so on, um, uh, amongst workers. One of the problems, the sort of core problem in this area, is something that several people have referred to, which is that there's a huge oversupply in this labour market. And uh, there are, someone told me there are a thousand degree courses available in Britain that have got the word film in the title alone. The British film industry is tiny. I mean, and in, so in one sense, in terms of having an education, higher and further education strategy that is aligned with labour market needs, it's, it's crazy. And, and the, the way some of those problems play out, I, I was, a, was head of public affairs at Channel 4 for five years, and, and a lot of the TV companies uh, have been working very hard on the diversity issue, and actually diversity around uh, around uh, ethnicity and disability in region, although it is referred to quite strongly in the, in the paper. But if you in, in television, one of the problems is that there are so many people who want to get into television that any production company or broadcaster could effectively staff their entire operation on Oxbridge graduates who will work for nothing. But clearly, if you want to have a television industry or a media industry that reflects to some extent the composition of society, you can't accept that. And, <coughs> How, what is the relationship between 
the, the kind of supply that's coming out of education institutions and how you manage that. I mean, essentially, how you discourage people from taking up those courses if there is no prospect for a job for them at the end. And another related issue, which is that we all operate the kind of creative economy idea on the basis that there's thousands and thousands of frustrated, talented people out there. And in fact, a, a Nesta survey a couple of years ago demonstrated the fact that in some areas, there's actually not a huge number of talented people. There's lots of not very talented people who want to get into these industries. That also, in a large sense, is a problem for, for the labour market. And so, the, as I understand it, the apprenticeships idea was a way of trying to trying to get a different track into the industry, which is not dependent on academic qualifications and is more attractive to small companies because it puts people in a working situation right away. It may be a very kind of crude uh, and inefficient way of doing it. But I, I think it's some of those, those very big problems about the complete mismatch between supply and demand in the creative industries and the, the oversupply of overqualified people uh, creates huge problems for having industries that in some sense reflect the composition of society. I just One, one other thing, um, the non-departmental public bodies are not the, not the training organisations, it's like the Arts Council, the Film Council, the Museums, Libraries and Archives Council, it's the kind of it's the, the big cultural institutions at that end that the DCMS's idea was to get them involved. I so see. that's... I see. That's, yeah. that, that, that's helpful. The... Uh, this is what it's all about. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right, and you, know, you can see that from the perspective of um, a certain agenda. That yes, um, what you want to do is uh, convert those people who either have aspirations to be uh, artistically creative, but. Uh, simply fail to recognise how unlikely it is that they're going to be able to make a living from it. Um, or people who have a kind of unclear understanding of uh, the division of labour that's involved in the industry and how actually the most effective way for a lot of people might be to work as a techie and be somehow alongside that more glamorous world. And, of course, that's why careers advice is being stressed, as it was in the original mapping document in 98, I think. Um, and, um, of, of, of course, it's appropriate to do a certain amount of that. But as what I was implying quite strongly, as you've probably gathered, was that it's accompanied by an attack on those spaces of autonomy within higher education and education generally that are... Um, may not be economically efficient because they may lead to oversupply but that do lead to an enrichment of people's experiences in very very important ways and, and that, that was the tension I was trying to bring out I, I'm going to stop it now, I know, I know there's a couple of questions but maybe they'll come back on the rest of the session um, so thanks for that Dave uh, I'm going to hand over for, to uh, Rosalind Gil from the Open University is going to talk about creative working in new media. Oh, thanks, Dave. Cheers. Yeah, that was good. Well, this isn't the first. I'm actually going to speak to my title <laughs> and my abstract. Very good. Um, I'm really, um, really appreciated Dave's talk, and I think that what I'm going to say sort of segues quite well into that. I was feeling a little bit anxious at the tea break because I was thinking I'm not going to be talking about philosophy. I'm not going to go back to Kant or Hume. I'm not going to be talking about first principles and defining creativity or culture. 
um, and I'm not going to really be talking about policy, but I am going to be talking really from the ground up, from the bottom up. This is um, a study that I've done with new media workers. Um, and I'm going to be telling you about some work that um, I initially started carrying out in 1999-2000, which was a six-country European Union-funded piece of research looking at electronic artists, new, new media, new digital workers. And this kind of dream scenario happened to me a few years ago, a couple of years ago, was that I went to present this work at a conference in Amsterdam. And at the end of the conference, the organisers came up to me and said, hey, that's really interesting. We'd like to fund your next study. <laughs> Does this really happen? So, um, so I ended up doing a, a piece of a small-scale qualitative study of new media workers in Amsterdam. And what I'd done in the previous piece of research was basically to interrogate some of the myths around this work. And these are the myths about it being cool, hip, bohemian, egalitarian. And they're the myths that circulate everywhere in the academic texts, in policy documents, um, and in kind of TV shows like Attachments that kind of perpetuate this idea that it doesn't matter if you're gay or you're straight, you're black or you're white, that it's a really kind of cool industry to be involved in, very egalitarian, very informal. Um, and what we did in our research was really to interrogate that by talking to workers themselves. And we wanted to go really beyond the, the two existing stereotypes that there seemed to be um, and these were, on the one hand, the stereotype of um, the sort of new utopia, this kind of incredible, flexible, open, free world that people were able to do this very satisfying creative labour in. On the other side, this side of idea of um, the new cybertariat, the new precariat, this exploited... Um, very, very marginalised labour and to actually go beyond those polarised stereotypes and actually talk to people and find out how they understood it. So these were some of the kind of uh, things that informed us as kind of large sociological debates. Um, this is a very, very small st study, the one I'm reporting on now, partly because of a sort of embarrassing scenario of having been offered this funding to do the piece of research of course I didn't know how much money they had so I didn't really know how much I could ask for so I kind of kept it small hoping they'd say well wouldn't you like to do something a little bit bigger than that but they didn't so it, it ended up being a study where we spoke to 34 people who were all involved in new media and um, <coughs> did the interviews in Amsterdam we, we talked about self-definitions this morning. We let our participants define their own um, work. We didn't kind of impose any understanding of new media or any understanding of, of particular occupations on them. We let them tell us what it was they thought they were doing. And these were how they broke down in terms of categories. In terms of job titles, there was barely a single overlap in the terms of the kind of... Um, just that the words that they used to describe what they did, whether it was web design, interaction design, digital animation, whatever, there was barely a single overlap. Um, oh. So, yeah, here's some of the different... Could you just tell us what type of companies they were working in? Well, they were... This was one of the interesting things about them, was that they were 
combining many, many different kinds of work. As Dave said and as Kate's alluded to earlier, these weren't people that kind of left university and went to work in a company like ICI or um, Universal Pictures or something and carried on working there. They were freelancing, they were self-employed, they were on short-term contracts, and often they were doing all of those things all together. So they were combining these different kinds of things. Um, and they, you know, their their existence, their lives. Um, I mean, they they were kind of social innovations in the way that they lived their lives because they had to literally, quite literally, put together their own kind of new, unmapped, creative biography. So these are some of the things that they were doing. And I wanted to come back to what Dave was saying about. Um, on the one hand, the love of the work, and on the other hand, the insecurity, because this is actually absolutely at the centre of understanding why it is that people stay in this kind of work that seems so exploitative, that's so badly paid, and yet which kind of has these passionate bonds and attachments to it. Um, and so I'm going to come back at the end to talking about what Angela McRobbie's called the pleasure-pain axis of this kind of work and just take you through, first of all, some of the things they said about why they loved this work. So all, these were the kinds of different reasons, and I'll just go through them very briefly with some quotes. So some people were deeply involved in the work for political reasons because it allowed them to continue their activism. It allowed them to work outside of government control, outside of corporate control, and it gave them opportunities, as they saw it, to influence social change. Other people talked about just the sheer enjoyment, the pleasure of the work in itself. Um, like being paid for your hobby. This was a phrase that came up again and again. It's a hobby and work combined. The fact that it was cool and happening work, that, that they wanted to be involved in something that was cutting edge, that was seen as sort of trendy, um, that was hip. And again, this really sort of resonates with Andrew Ross's work about um, sort of techno-bohemia, Richard Lloyd's work about neo-bohemia, and so on. I think possibly if you had to single out one of the reasons as most central, it would be this, the entrepreneurship and the autonomy. This was really the thing that most people mentioned when asked what it was that they loved about this work and what attracted them to the field. Being able to create something for yourself, being able to work autonomously, being your own boss. These were the things that were repeatedly mentioned. People saying they didn't want to work for big companies, um, wanted to be constantly innovating, um, wanted the freedom of being an entrepreneur, choosing your own time frame, choosing who you work with, choosing when you work, where you work, and so on, um, not, not having hierarchies. And this is just a couple of quotes, just about not working for a boss, wanting to do work that's fast and exciting, um, doing something that breaks out of the standard nine-to-five day. Another key aspect that they loved was the opportunities it gave to communicate. They loved the fact that the Internet was this new mass medium, and this was something that was almost palpable in some of the interviews, this kind of, wow, this is the first truly kind of global medium. If I communicate in this, I can reach so many different people. Um, I, I think you can see that in the second quote here. 
what attracted me, I think, was helping people communicate in a medium which is so much more mass than anything before. There's never been a medium which puts out so much, which is so massive. And opportunities to innovate. Just that sense of learning all the time, creating all the time. The only limit is your imagination. You're making it up. Um, and I think one of the to come back to the, the word innovation again because this is something I've been thinking about for a book chapter I've had to write that's had innovation in the title um, again to kind of completely open up that term I think one of the innovations in this field is the fact that there's so much more um, informal learning and peer learning that you know these are an incredibly highly educated bunch of workers but actually most of their learning goes on in informal settings where there's somebody standing at their shoulder telling them, oh, you know, try this, do that, and so on. It's not kind of book learning. It's not kind of university learning. It's a different kind of learning, and that's one of the innovative things about this field. Now, my 10 years is slightly different from the other 10 years that people have been talking about here because my 10 years, in, in a way, and the reason that this work was commissioned, is a kind of 10 years after the web. Well, it's now sort of 14 years nearly since, since the web. But one of the things that we asked in this more recent study was how new media work was changing and how people's experiences of it were changing as things kind of bedded down and stabilised and got a bit more kind of professionalised. And compared with the earlier study that we did, we found that there was a lot more sense of professionalisation within this field, um, a lot more sense of specialisation. And so previously people had reported kind of well you know you're basically working with two or three friends setting up a company and you're just kind of mixing and matching everybody's doing everything um, but here they started talking about much more kind of specialization so you'd have somebody that was the designer somebody else who was writing the code somebody else that might be the kind of person that interfaced with the client or whatever and there was a kind of quite a marked sense of, of there being less utopianism in this moment than there had been in the early days when we first started doing this kind of research and much more of a sense of commercialism. So just a couple of quotes here about how people felt that new media was changing. Some people happy about that, other people disappointed move that on and a, a couple more just a sense of consolidation specialization um, change professionalization now coming back to this pleasure pain axis I wanted to talk about something very concrete and that is the working hours the kind of hours that people are putting in in, in these sorts of um, organizations there was a dramatic split in the sample so people in traditional organizations were tending to work something like 40 hours a week maximum if they worked more they would get compensated they'd either get paid overtime or they'd get time off in lieu but everybody else the, the vast majority of our interviewees who were either on freelance contracts or they were self-employed their working hours ranged from a, a sort of low of 50 to around 85 and the sort of 
median figure was really around 60 to 65 hours per week. And, um, you know, and in the full report, there are lots and lots of quotes about this where people explain exactly how they worked out what they could possibly tolerate in terms of working hours. So saying things like, I learned from other people that if you work 70 hours a week, you can do it for three weeks, but on the fourth week, you, you just collapse. And so I'm not going to work 70 hours, I'm going to work 65, because then I can just about sustain it over the long term. Um, but really, you know, absolutely this kind of very, very reflexive process going on. And the kind of working patterns are, are things like that Andy Pratt's described as bulimic working patterns, where um, there would be very, very intense periods of working where you're working through several nights and then nothing then this kind of uh, famine of work. On top of this work, there's the time spent needing to keep up. Obviously, this is the case in all creative labor, but in new media, where packages are being launched, new software's being launched all the time, there's this incredible fast um, rate of change, and people have to keep up. And <coughs> the anxieties associated with that were really, really striking. Um, and people saying that they spent anything from 15 hours upwards per week just keeping up with new developments, not wanting to be left behind, realizing they would have to learn the new packages if they wanted to get the next piece of work. And this very much ties in with what. Um, Rosemary Batt and Susan Christofferson found in their New York study where they found that people were spending around 20 hours a week just keeping up. Now, this long hours and keeping up, on the one side, we saw an intense love of this, people loving the deadlines, people actually really getting off on the adrenaline of this kind of intense working great that you're learning all the time great that you're working, that you feel like you're there in the centre of things but also we saw very very high levels of stress and pressure very very severe anxieties about keeping up or being left behind we saw very very dramatic impact on relationships and very clear expression of worries about whether it be possible to have children and there's now a kind of growing body of work that's documenting not just gender inequalities and inequalities related to race and ethnicity but also those new more complex inequalities that relate to things like being able to have children and, and do this work so this was the kind of thing that people said. We have a hell of a time keeping the hours, even though he's working with a really good planner. I have this fear I might not be able to keep up with all the technical developments. Also, MP3 players and phones with video cameras are too much for me. I'm going to let that pass me by. Just this kind of having to make decisions about can I work with these new platforms? You know, Am I going to just kind of ring fence what I work on? So an incredible amount of precariousness and insecurity around keeping up, around finding work, around financial insecurity, having to bear all of the risks and costs associated with this work themselves and, and trying to plan for the future. So worries about whether you'll have enough work or not, 
And then this, this comment here, it's a privilege to have a job which is also your hobby, but it shouldn't make you ill. Um, a neighbor came by and he asked whether I worked with Ajax yet. Um, of course, I come from a moment where Ajax used to be a cleaning product in the 1960s and 1970s. It's now a program. And I was like, oh, my God, now I have to learn that too. Just this sense of this intense pressure, that the requirement to stay abreast, to keep up. It's insecure. Maybe I'll look for a job two days a week to pay the rent, but really I don't have time. And then people telling us that they couldn't take holidays. They, they couldn't afford to take holidays, but also they couldn't take the risk of taking holidays because they might miss out on work and they can't say no to a job because they don't know when they're next off. And all of those very familiar kinds of things. I wanted to say something that went back to our earlier study, which was around egalitarianism. You know, I talked about how this myth of the creative industries, but especially of of new media as this kind of egalitarian space, this new place, this new kind of reinvented space where old inequalities have no place. And this is kind of the idea that no one's excluded, anyone can do this, there are no barriers to entry, or perhaps, you know, anyone can do it, but you have to be young, as one person said it. Um, What we found, though, was that there was that there were serious challenges to this myth of egalitarianism. We we were shocked really to find surprisingly little concern about the kind of exclusions within this industry amongst our interviewees. And there were only um, the the only people who commented on the lack of racial diversity in the field were two non-Dutch interviewees. And I f- found this first statement very, very kind of apposite saying at um, the name of this rather large very, very successful web design company (coughs) where he worked all the cleaners, waiters and security guards had brown skin and brown faces, all the web designers had blonde hair and blue eyes Um, but it was striking I mean, to us it was striking to see the whiteness of the field and this is very much borne out by figures from skill set about the lack of diversity within new media despite its own kind of self-publicity um, and um, also the underrepresentation of women in new media um, it's harder to see because there are many more women than there are non-white people working in new media but they're very concentrated in particular kinds of roles and there was a strong kind of discourse um, that we encountered, which was the idea that essentially men are the technical ones, and but it's good to have women because they're very good at interacting with the clients, they're very good at being customer-facing, they're very good at all those soft social skills. Very depressing to hear that, you know, at this moment in time in a city like Amsterdam. And then the third set of challenges to this sort of egalitarian myth was around parenting. So very few new media workers have children. And people felt that parenting would be difficult, if not impossible, to fit into their lives. So people who wanted to have children experienced particularly high levels of stress. And they were often the ones who considered leaving the field. 
the ones who did manage to have children um, or were contemplated contemplating it felt that <coughs> women who had children in particular would be perceived as less committed so this is um, an example from Sebastian I have a relationship with somebody who's also involved in this work I don't know if we're going to have kids it scares the living hell out of me the whole idea because of overwork horrifying overwork is the reality if I had some kids boy it would be a tough life so just try to kind of rush through really some of the kind of the, the, the love and the hate or the pleasure and the pain of working in this field and also to try and challenge the ongoing myths about egalitarianism I just wanted to say a couple of words really in conclusion to open up some things that I think are, are real dilemmas and debates and the first is this, this pleasure-pain axis it's these questions about how do we think these things together how do we, at the moment we've seen that we've got the kind of polarised stereotypes, we've got the kind of techno-bohemians um, versus the, the net slaves but how do we actually think those stereotypes in a way together that, that actually it's not one thing or the other, it's both and it's both at the same time and we need to actually theorise this pleasure-pain axis properly I think and also think about how it plays out in the longer term because um, we, we really need to think about what happens to these workers as they age I think we desperately need longitudinal work on this group of workers so that we're not just taking snapshots of people who are in their 30s but who are actually sort of seeing whether this can be a kind of sustainable life I think we also need to theorise um, what Andrew Ross called self-exploitation which Kate was talking about and I was so pleased that you were speaking about that just a few moments ago because um, it's obviously central to understanding what is going on it's, this is not about kind of oppression by employers this is absolutely about um, the love of the work contributing to the kind of tyranny and pressure that people feel themselves under and I always think whenever I study this I always think God Roz you're just displacing all the stuff that you feel about academia and putting it onto new media workers because I think absolutely the same processes are going on in universities that we all do that the whole free labour thing the whole kind of working on in very very short term contracts and you know intensively working to get those papers out to try and get on but I, don't, I think we need um, a sort of psychosocial language for theorising this. I think we absolutely need to kind of open this up because it's one of those terms that's a little bit like the whole kind of concept of false consciousness. It's slightly problematic and we need to actually kind of really look at it, I think. Um, this goes hand in hand with sort of thinking about the new forms of, of discipline and regulation that operate in this field, what Nicholas Rose would say um, is about the kind of entre entrepreneurship of the self. Um, so things like the individualization of failure, the anxiety about the future, the kind of constant self-monitoring that people are doing so that, that if they don't get the job they're thinking I better try harder, I should be doing this it's my fault, 
this kind of internalization um, of, of failure and the having to take on all of the risks and responsibilities onto the self rather than seeing those as um, something distributed. And then there's a question that I think I can't really get into, but sort of um, there's debates going on at the moment, particularly sort of on mainland Europe around the shift from an idea of precariousness to precarity or precarité in, in its French version. And, you know, some of you may be involved in those debates uh, are, which kind of come out of a political movement that wants to make links across different forms of experience, different groups of workers, undocumented migrants, <coughs> sex workers, artists, creative labourers, um, and try and sort of think that relationship in a different way that, that sees positive things in it as well as the kind of negative exploitation that I point to all the time, um, but sort of sees the possibility for new forms of struggle, new forms of sociality, um, new forms of politics coming out of that. So I think what does that, that shift in language from precariousness to precarity, what does it make thinkable and or what does it occlude and stop us from seeing um, and then I think we really need to grasp this issue of inequality it's so central to this field and to think about how it relates to the informality of the field this is a field where unlike academia people don't send in their CV in response to an application, have it looked at by a committee that will involve, you know, will always involve um, a person of colour, a woman, someone who's there on behalf of disabled people, etc. This is something where work is distributed entirely through informal networks and it leads to a kind of um, reproduction of particular kinds of power relations and statuses and we absolutely I think need to think the relationship between the informality of the sector and that's being what attracts people and the kind of continued in inequalities that it produces and then finally this is really Andrew Ross's question but I still think that it's such an important question and that is like what can we um, as critical researchers contribute to policy about creative labour and I think Dave did a fantastic job of kind of doing a non-satirical um, deconstructional reading of the document but I think that we also have some responsibility to think about well what would a good life for a creative worker look like? What kind of qualitative features should it have? And so maybe we have to kind of unleash our imaginations in that respect as well. So I'll leave it there. Okay. Um, back there. Yep. Um, thanks. Um, that's what was really terrific, Ross, and really, really informative and, and kind of got me thinking. Those last questions are, are terrific. Well, well, I wanted to address two points, really. One was that um, when you said at one point, not, actually not about oppression by employers, and I don't, but, but surely it is. I mean, the fact is that the informal economy, the, the, the informality of it, isn't just a question of people opting into that. The informality is a terrifically convenient 
way of capitalism um, it, you know, ex- doing its usual business exploitation. And it's true across all cultural labor markets, that informality, to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, obviously there are some which are more integrated than others. But it's a tendency in all, you know, all, this kind, all these kinds of work. So I was going to say, well, yes, it is about pressure by employers, but, it's all, but, it, but that doesn't preclude uh, informality, it doesn't include, preclude self-exploitation. That was the first point. The second one was really in response to what you... Um, and just to add that your research presumably took place during the dot-com bubble to some extent. So this is really emphasizes that in a sense. This is a moment in which that form of work is becoming hugely valuable. <coughs> Capital value of those, those companies is increasing enormously you know, in, the, in the end of the 90s. Um, then really the second point was really to respond a bit to your last question, can critical researchers contribute? Two ways it seems to me we can think about moving forward here. One is, that, one is a straightforward um, regulation, nationalization, unionization, decatalization. All those things would improve the quality of cultural work uh, considerably um, without necessarily getting rid of any of those sort of creative, autonomous aspects either. I mean, you know, working in the BBC, working in university, um, we have managed to combine those good conditions with informality. Um, and then the second one was, well, the, the, almost with the opposite direction. We remove commodification, get rid of IP, intellectual property rights, um, destroy the commodity wherever possible, and that way turn la- get rid of uh, exploited, exploited labour. People can then, then make art in their own time. Wow, that's great. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> um, I ne- just need to say that the first piece of research that we did was in that kind of dot-com bubble, but this, this later piece wasn't. You know, it was very much kind of after the crash. Um, although I still kind of have huge doubts about that, that form of accounting anyway, and I think it's so much kind of a US-based form of accounting that didn't quite play out in the same way here, um, but, but particularly not sort of in, in Amsterdam where that research was carried on. Um, in terms of, is it oppression by employers or is it, you know, that doesn't preclude self-exploitation? I guess so. I, I guess I think the thing that's, that's um, that really needs to be explored, though, is the self-exploitation or is the... Is the is this as a kind of new disciplinary mechanism that we are all implicated in very, very deeply. And so um, I suppose I will continue to overemphasize that against the the kind of elements of of oppression by external forces. Okay. Over there, and then... Yes, yes. Thanks again for that. I mean, I appreciate that very much. Um, And I I keep thinking about what you said, about how... um, People seem not not so concerned about inequality and, and sort of race, you know, um, racism and sexism. I mean, that, that was kind of quite disturbing. Um, and I'm wondering why why do you think this is the case? I mean, is it because of the individualization of failure or the informality that means if you you know raise a stink about these kind of things, you could lose potential work? But is it also a sense that you know um, dealing with these these sorts of workplace democracy issues is considered like the most uncool thing? <laughs> That you can you can raise. I mean, I'm just I'm just curious your thoughts as to why these people don't seem to care about it so much. Um, I think it's partly because they they believe their own myth, and there's something incredibly seductive about that myth, isn't there? I mean, it's it's a very kind of flattering. It's a, it's a kind of conceit. It's a, a wonderful myth to live by, really. That you that you live in that you work in this kind of very egalitarian, open. Um, so, kind of work zone where there's no barriers but to me it's also absolutely related to kind of a wider backlash against feminism the whole kind yeah, of post-feminist so moment 
post-political correctness, what, what Paul, Paul Gilroy talks about as post-race moment. Um, and it seems completely kind of um, full, consumed really by all of those kinds of ideas, I think. Just to build on that, what Anne and what Jason said, I mean, there is another that relates to this last point as well. There's another kind of exploitation going on. It's firms exploiting one another, uh, entrepreneurs exploiting one another. And you can't just talk about, you know, the big firm, and we can't just talk about self-exploitation. I mean, there's this very benign narrative around, you know, the creative cluster that if you stick lots of small entrepreneurs in one place, they will all kind of get on like a house on fire, and harmonious relations will lead to economic growth. In these kind of conditions, I was just wondering what evidence you found of actual instrumental behaviour, a breakdown of moral relations between these entrepreneurs themselves, not just in terms of, you know, you did allude to relationships, but in terms of, you know, um, within the firm and between between firms, you know, that, that, that supposedly work together in this kind of, you know, bohemian environment. Actually, I didn't find that at all. I found that there, there were sort of intense bonds between people and there's this incredibly strong sort of network sociality and what Melissa Gregg talks about as a sort of compulsory sociality so that, you know, you have to be going out drinking all the time. And, um, you know, people said to us, oh, I can't talk to you on Monday because, God, Monday's the only night I don't have drinks. I'm going to make the most of it, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Just this sense of you have to be out there socialising. And that itself became a kind of disciplinary mechanism. It is, and, you know, but you know, in case of where firms may be competing for the same contract or where firms may be, you know, trying to attract the attention of, say, you know, the BBC Programme Commission or whatever it is, you know, just as a random example, I mean... It would seem to me that, you know, that kind of network sociality, you know, that kind of, yeah. you know, that instrumental kind of networking in a way can lead to, you know, as much of a, a, a you know, a threat to the cohesion of the community as, you know, as, as much as enhance it. Just, but, I, you, but you yeah. obviously didn't find that. So. Didn't find that. Remember, this is a really small study, yeah, yeah. but um, we have got, I've got it with Andy Pratt, um, I've got a big study um, that we've finished doing. We've got sort of 200 interviews in the UK and the US um, where I think we will probably find things like that. And it's much more about where kind of web workers kind of morphed into advertising. And I think we're much more likely to find that in, in there. Right. So I'll come back to you. So, you there. Yes, I had you. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, to start off with, you said you were going to try and approach or unpack some myths which we have around cultural workers. But then when you start to question for the lady there, you said these workers believe their own myths mm. and I was, hate to ask a methodological question but I was wondering whether you tried to ensure in your analysis of the data any way that you could ensure that you didn't subscribe to their myths because it seemed like you were just presenting quotes from the respondents fairly uncritically and if they believe their own myth in what sense are you unpacking those myths or just adding to them? Well I think that we are unpacking them particularly around sort of egalitarianism I mean we did I have to actually sort of written about this before because sort of doing feminist research is, there's a particular kind of ethical responsibility on you to kind of listen carefully to your participants responses and treat them with respect and um, and sometimes I found that that clashed with my own kind of critical reading of them when they were coming out with kind of 
what I would see as post-feminist statements such as there's, you know, oh no, there's really no sexism here, it's fine. But I was seeing this kind of patterned inequality where I saw that women were earning a third less than men. They were getting sort of so f- many fewer of the contracts and everything. How could I put those two things together? Um, and I think the only way that I found that I could do it was to draw attention to it you know, to say this is how it may be understood by the people participating in the industry, but this is what I see as a, you know, as a sociologist coming from the outside. I see these two, two things. I see a, a pattern of accounts, but I also see a pattern of kind of reality and just kind of put them in juxtaposition. Great. Um, yeah, that was great. And one thing that struck me in the early parts of when you were presenting the, the, the um, slides about pleasure was... Why is it that we nowadays go to work for pleasure? And what is it about the society we've constructed that doesn't provide that pleasure in other ways? <laughs> um, and it struck me quite forcibly that people were talking about things like learning and, and sociability and challenge. And that maybe, and I'm you know, really hesitant to support anything that Nicholas Sarkozy and David Cameron's keen on, but maybe there's something in this kind of politics of well-being which is about not sorting out the problem of work through, through regulation of the workplace but providing those kind of pleasures other other places in society. Because it seems to me that one of the sad things about this is what these people are getting out of work, they're obviously not getting anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's absolutely fascinating, yes. I'm going to take three more questions, then move on. uh, One there, because you didn't ask it before. Uh, Yeah, yeah, um, I have an online organisation. I I work with people in (coughs) California. So... Some of what you said is true. I mean, in every industry, people get exploited. But the reality is you work hard. You have an incredible opportunity to work with a million different organizations doing amazing things. There are no doors for you to put your foot into because they just opportunities are everywhere. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, they, on some level, people get exploited. And, yeah, you live to work, not work to live um, a lot of the time. But I think it's important to say that this new media is not an alternative industry. It is the industry of the future. This is where we're going to live in the future. And punk is alive in this industry. So this whole concept of uh, government giving apprenticeships for uh, big organizations is useless. Because really what you need is government helping RDAs um, locally to help small creative organizations stop getting exploited and really use this um, network a lot better. So I think... uh, the whole concept here is that we shouldn't be Luddites. We should be <coughs> industry and helping it. Okay, Thanks. one more, and then one more. So you, okay. I'm, I'm going to be a Luddite. Um, <laughs> I think the ghost of Harry Braverman is stalking through here quite a lot. Um, I think we should be proud that the ghost of Harry Braverman is living here. For, for a couple of reasons. A lot of what you said reminded me an awful lot of the work that Rowena Barrett did on software programmers in small software houses in Melbourne in the late 1990s, just before the, um, the dot-com turned them all into dot-com host as well. <laughs> the thing about that, and there's two things I just want to say about that. The first is in terms of this pleasure-pain thing. You've got to look at where, in her case it was kids, it was young boys, by and large, came from. They drew no distinction between what they'd been doing at school, what they'd been doing through college, university, and into work. It was all, as they saw it, exactly the same thing. The only difference was they now couldn't believe it. They were getting paid 
for doing it. So you've got to look at that transition. Mm. That's already quite important. You know, where did they come from? Mm. What they didn't realise was this was temporary. And it was going to be very temporary, partly for the reasons you can self-exploit yourself up for, up for a while, but at some point or other, you're going to find somewhere to live. You, know, you might want a family. These are things that just doesn't work out in that sense. And also, the other thing happened is you started to point out in terms of the way that the industry shifted. It formalised, and it's increasingly formalised. And the area for the games for these kids, it was, shrank and shrank, and what became more and more dominant in the industry was the suits. They became much more, it became ghettoized, formalized, and shrunk. And so the dynamics of the thing meant you could have the pleasure pain access, but it was only technically, in some ways, a relatively privileged, you know, low paid self exploitation, whatever you like to call it, a relatively privileged position within the labor market, but that was being consistently undermined by the changing nature of the sector that they were, they were in. It really doesn't exist within that sector anymore in Melbourne, I mean, maybe in Amsterdam, it doesn't. And so I think there is that, that, under, that, that undermining. Um, going on there, and we have to we have to look we have to look at that. And just one final little point: <coughs> I don't think the pleasure pain thing is new by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's a matter of a matter of kind. I mean, practically anybody that you, you talk to in work, no matter how much they hate them, the people that they work for, will take pride in what they do or want to take pride in what they do. So to some extent, that thing is always there. It's a matter of how it manifests itself and to what degree and what alternatives in terms of resistance there are. And part of this question of resistance up to the last point, which I thought was wonderful, um, has been a bit absent in the discussions today. One last point. Go on. Yeah. Uh, my my um, comment is related a bit to what he said and also a bit to what you said. I thought your presentation really cool, really good. And I thought um, what I was a bit missing was this kind of idea of potentiality in the future, working for some, you know, to be maybe the winner one day, you know, this kind of myth. Mm -hmm. And also coming from Berlin, where there is such a high unemployment rate and people don't have an alternative to, well, you know, they have university degrees, they start to be DJs when they're 20 while they're studying. They think after their degree they will get a job, but they don't. So they continue to be a DJ, hoping that one day that will pay off. So it's not only self-exploitation in the way that people realize their hobbies, you know, in that how, how you had it, or you? I think in some um, locations there is no alternative to that. Mm. Or you have to leave. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> thank uh, you. Please <laughs> never forward. <laughs> and uh, so I hand over finally to uh, <laughs> to Mark, who's going to sort of do the final paper of the day. Mark Banks from here, from Open University in Cresc, um, looking at craft values and creative industries, okay. which is bubbled around today. Yeah. Are you, do you want to get rid of that? Uh, yeah, right, okay. Right, okay. Um, yes, um, I think my paper is a bit of a Luddite paper as well, um, uh, as, as will become clear, or perhaps is indicated by the use of the word craft in the title, but we'll, we'll come to that. Um, what I'm going to talk about today, really, or to try and provide, is a I suppose a, a critique of the creative industries, kind of, um, but more broadly, I suppose, a, a critique of a recent um, book, a fairly recent book, called The New Spirit of Capitalism by um, Boltanski and Chappello, which I think you mentioned this morning. Um, 
And the new spirit of capitalism contains a very distinctive account of the decline of what's called the artist critique um, in, in work generally, but I'm going to try and apply it specifically to the, the uh, creative industries. So it will be quite a Luddite paper. There'll be lots of old-fashioned words like craft, artist critique, and capitalism. Um, but hopefully... <laughs> In, uh, in giving this paper, perhaps it'll come back to the future, if you like. Okay, right. So in the last decade, this shift from a kind of a loose and variegated, I suppose, cultural industries discourse to a more economically driven creative industries policy appears to have fundamentally transformed the nature of creative industries' work. And as we know, what critical social science tells us is that the creative industry's workplace has kind of suffered a, a kind of double tragedy, um, or as some see a kind of double murder, I suppose. Um, first, the death of a social critique, and secondly, the death of an artist or an artistic critique. And I suppose the first thing I want to say is I think critics are actually exaggerating the death of the social critique. Uh, despite numerous reversals, it's clear that in the creative industries that are a collectivised politics concerned with security and equality, uh, the distribu distribution of resources has not entirely evaporated. And, of course, you know, the Writers Guild strike was the most recent high-profile example of how creative workers have attempted to organise to challenge, if you like, uh, employers. So there are many kind of diverse work-based movements and collective struggles ongoing. Um, so it might be then that critics, I think, are perhaps on firmer ground regard, regarding the decline, if not quite the death, of the artistic critique. So what I want to do, at least temporarily, is to set aside the social critique, not in any complacent way, but for the purposes of this paper, and today examine the apparent terminal condition of the artistic critique in the creative industries, and to suggest one particular pathway of how we might conceive of resuscitating it from within. Now, in the, last day, in the last decade, as we've heard today, the, the DCMS and others, of course, played a significant role in formulating UK creative industries policy, uh, a series of interve interventions that are premised, as we know, on a distinctive set of enterprise values. And recently, this economic hard-headedness, I suppose, has increased, and not just with uh, some of the uh, publications that we've talked about today. Uh, it's, be it's been coming uh, uh, a long time, I think, and... For example, in 2005, then Minister for Creative Industries, James Purnell, suggested that the priority now was very much to give the DCMS a genuine economic edge, as he called it, and to concern itself with how we can turn talent into hits and hits into profit. This is his quote. And as Dave's outlined, you know, last Friday's release of the DCMS report, Creative Britain, continues to set out the prevailing vision of um, creativity as this engine of economic growth. But if creative industries policy is an attempt to make enterprise values foundational in the arts and what were the cultural industries, this initiative does, of course, correspond with other um, widespread, though perhaps less formalised, calls to uh, economic action. For example, the attraction of the creative industries has been enhanced by the emergence of a more kind of vivid and intensified discourse of stardom and the fascination with creative celebrities. And um, related to this, the elevated extension of what Angela McRobbie um, calls the auteur relation into hitherto mundane areas of creative work has proved similarly enticing, I think, to prospective workers, as she describes, uh, to quote, the profusion of profiles and interviews and with hairdressers, cooks, artists and fashion designers, the public are presented with endless accounts of the seemingly inherent rewards of created la uh, creative labour. <coughs> 
So the proliferation of media formats promoting creative industries and their increasingly upbeat and uncritical tone, I suppose, suggests to populations that creative work is both highly prestigious but, above all, easily attainable. <coughs> and creative industries, as, as I guess we know now, are testaments to that kind of meritocratic principle that are idealised to underpin uh, the so-called new economy, namely that anyone can make it, providing they possess both talent and uh, individual application. And in that kind of, you know, in saying that, I'm immediately thinking of Gordon Ramsay. So I don't know why, it just came into my head. Anyway, as of course, as we've already seen today, this package of incitements, if you like, has led people into forms of work that are widely promoted as being autonomous, uh, creative, lucrative, and so on. Yet, um, for the majority, will offer no such rewards. We know that in creative industries, work, as Ros has just uh, described, hours are long, pay is low, um, glamour, in fact, is at a premium. Wealth and fame are uncommon. Nonetheless, through this variety, I think, of upbeat policy and public discourses, the, the intellectual resources through which populations understand the reality of creative work have been quite starkly defined. The creative industries are now very much about uh, external, if you like, rather than internal rewards. So given these developments, I want to ask, what is the status of art and culture in the, in the creative industries discourse? And for many, I think it appears that art has been cast out into the wilderness, if you like, or at the very least sacrificed to instrumentality. But it would be a mistake, I think, to argue that art is no longer relevant to creative industries policy. Indeed, the discourse of the creative industries contains within it specific appeals to the artist and offers various sedu seductions to those uh, imagined to be in possession of some kind of febrile artistic temperament, if you like. Firstly, artists have been encouraged to accept the, the, the freedoms and the kind of the liberated potential of market relations. Through policy initiative and wider calls to economic action that I've described, artists have learned that publicly subsidised art is inefficient and elitist, that the market is now the best mechanism for enabling art to find its public. Indeed, the argument is made that the creative industries are vanguard in the democratisation of art, taking it out of the intellectual ghetto, raising its profile, introducing it to new consumers and new connoisseurs. So the art economy has expanded and more art is being made and exchanged than ever before. Artists are now told that selling out is a kind of relic concept, a kind of hangover from the days when um, art and commerce existed in allegedly kind of unhelpful op opposition. So what we know now is that the commercial world is the friend, not the enemy of creativity. Artists have been encouraged to adopt a more pragmatic attitude to market relations. Artwork has become business-like and, of course, some people have benefited from that. But just as artwork has become business-like, of course, work and business has become more art-like, since those still hung up on the idea that art and cultural production are foundationally different to economics uh, have now been offered the idea that creative industries' work in itself represents a new kind of artistic freedom, if you like. Um, and as we now know, across all kinds of work, the, you know, the, the monotonous constraints of, um, and frustrations of tenured labour, of, of contracts of hierarchies and the kind of bureaucracies appear to have evaporated in this heat uh, of a new discourse that emphasises the capacities of work to generate individual freedom. And of course, this alludes to what uh, Ros was talking about in terms of self-exploitation. There's the perception, the widespread perception, that it's not home that kind of provides us with our rewards and our sense of well-being, it's work. So in the creative industries, these enticements into work, these freedom-generating potentials of work, of, of find self-expression... Um, uh, find expression in the way in which uh, the creative industries are seen to be commensurate entirely, if you like, with artistic values. So it's in, in exploring this second shift that has occurred, I think, this kind of um, this making over of work uh, and this um, 
promotion of creative industries as being the source of artistic freedom that I want to talk about in the light of Boltansky and Chappello's book, The New Spirit of Capitalism. Now, some of you may have read this, and for those of you who haven't, I'll try and summarise it um, succinctly. It's a very thick book, so it'll be hard. Um, what they describe uh, in the 1960s, I suppose, is, is the emergence of a, a particular strand of opposition to capitalism that took the form of what they call an artist critique, a critique of disenchantment and a critique of alienation, um, and a movement that peaked in the countercultural revolutions of 1968. So broadly put, they argue that since then, since the, kind of the, the, you know, the, the peak of the artistic critique, what has happened is that in order to ameliorate these external threats, capitalism has taken on those artistic values and systematically absorbed them into the logic and practice of business. Precisely in order to provide the disaffected and potentially revolutionary populations with opportunities for meaningful work. So they argue that there has been, in fact, not then a kind of a rejection or a crushing of the artistic critique, but a kind of cultural assimilation uh, of artistic opposition into the core of capitalism itself. So variously, various kind of previously suspect and kind of threatening countercultural values are now seen as central to success in the creative or knowledge economy, however you want to call it. And for Boltansky and Chappello, business has become more art-like insofar as it is now premised on rule-breaking, on kind of visionary intuition, self-expression uh, and creativity. And furthermore, the individualization of work, which is, of course, kind of realised in the promotion of um, personalised contracts, performances, tests, um, personalised rewards, the promotion of portfolio working, the ethic of self-responsibility and so on, has proved seductive to artists and cultural producers since it speaks to personal freedoms in terms not um, dissimilar to the radical avant-garde. If art is understood as radicalism, individuality, creativity and self-expression, then so too is work and business. And Roth mentioned Richard Lloyd's book, Neo-Bohemia, and in that book he describes how that the ethic of experimentation, creativity and insecurity that traditionally characterised artistic culture now exhibits a kind of clear affinity with the demands and the offerings of post-industrial capitalism. So it seems that, if you like, the rebels have been enticed in, into the mainstream, but not just for the usual reasons, not just for the usual external rewards of money, fame, and the opportunities for kind of popular consecration, but for the promise of internal existential freedom, artistic freedom. So in this way, then, art has not been divorced from creative industries' work, as we sometimes imagine, but it's become more fully contained within it. And the conventional idea that art and avant-garde cultural production somehow comprises a critical outside um, and the source of an oppositional politics is obviously brought into serious question from the point of view of Boltansky and Chappelle's critique. Radical art appears to be as conducive to the new management and the new economy, the neoliberal standard, if you like, as any other kind of avant-garde practice that promotes radical subjectivity as its foundational principle. So while opponents of the creative industry's discourse have, have typically taken if you like, refuge in the artist's salon as a means of cultivating the kind of intellectual resources necessary to resist um, economic logic, if art and commerce appear increasingly driven by similar imperatives um, to business, then the question is raised of how effective can this opposition be? So Boltansky and Chappello's analysis is you know, daunting and compelling and but I guess even they would not want to rule out the possibility that the potential for artistic um, opposition has entirely evaporated. And while there's, I suppose the new seductions of creative work threatens constantly to impose a kind of creative or radical closure, 
capital can never really fully control or standardise artists since some degree of creative autonomy um, always remains necessary for producing new goods and the need to encourage unruliness and non-conformity and capriciousness in otherwise kind of rational organisations and firms simply to ensure the generation of demonstrably new supplies of cultural goods provides some reassurance, I guess, that the standardisation and the closure of um, creative work can never be complete. It even offers some kind of utopian promise that some rogue elements of art might one day cut free and help usher in some yet-to-be-specified progressive um, social transformations. So even Boltanski and Chappelle don't see the potential of radical art as entirely exhausted. But if they, um, and if we, I suppose, feel ambivalent about the possibility of radical art providing an effective critique of creative industries' work now, today, as I think many do, then maybe one strategy is to re-examine those other artistic practices and values that play an equally important and distinctive role in creative industry production. And I'm talking here about, well, craft and craft values. I think one problem with Boltanski and Chappelle's book and their discussion is when they talk about the artist or the artistic critique, there's a tendency to overemphasize, I think, only those aspects of art that correspond with modern notions of art as a form of conceptually driven kind of radical subjectivity, rather than the more traditional idea that art is a, related to specific skills or techniques or as a kind of practical facility, a kind of artfulness, perhaps, or what is now more broadly kind of often referred to as craft. But by negating, if you like, this other side of art, it is arguable that what Boltanski and Chappelle have imposed is a kind of premature closure on the possibility, I think, of artistic critique. So the idea of craft, I think, has played an important role in the politics of creative and uh, cultural industries production. But I think that's tended to be overlooked in favour of exploring the freedoms apparently contained within the practices of radical and conceptual art. But both practices, I think, are, are crucial. So I want to merely raise the question, really, is that if the values of art as a, an expression of radical individuality or as, a, or as a kind of aesthetic judgment appears to have maybe not lost their reason for being but maybe a large degree of their effectiveness and, and credibility... Perhaps we can identify in craft or the idea of craft values, in fact, in what I would call if like, the foundational act of artwork in itself, a possible source of oppositional politics to the neoliberal rationale that now underpins the creative industries. And if we can, then what kind of opposition might this politics of craft might uh, now provide? Okay, so in the ideal of craft production, Control over the conception, the design and the manufacture uh, of a good is possessed by individual or small groups of workers working together in you know, idealised workshop conditions. And the genesis of commodities in, in creative industries, um, this is, I think, considered absolutely necessary. Um, creative industry production tends to work in environments where the creative efforts of individuals and small groups are combined to create a new idea. But these ideas have a, a kind of social history. They rely upon tacit and embodied knowledge. They exhibit both intellectual and practical inheritances. And this idea, as we've heard today, um, that the creative industries are populated by you know, capricious individuals who use their natural creativity <coughs> to conjure new commodities and ideas out of thin air, overlooks how creative industries tend to operate on a kind of more mundane, socially embedded craft production model. And this has long been recognised, of course. Um, even you know, the arch critic of the culture industry, Theodore Adorno, acknowledged the durability of craft production um, 
when he observed that individual forms of production are maintained amidst the standardisation of the commodity, or when he more precisely observed that the act of producing a song hit, as he called them, still remains in a handicraft stage. So craft production persists and is kind of necessary in um, the creative industries. And I suppose the generation of what we often identify as kind of transcendental or creative um, individual art and what the DCMS kind of valorizes commodities that derive their value from acts of individual creativity cannot proceed, it seems, without some relation to embedded and humanized forms of labor. So perhaps at this present time, then, it is here in the context of kind of socially embedded production, in the act of work itself, rather than its um, aesthetic justification as art that an oppositional politics might uh, be reconceived in, in the creative industries. Um, craft production we might describe as a process over which a person has detailed control. Um, detailed control that is a consequence of craft knowledge. And paramount here again, I think, is the idea that work should be based on the possession of distinctive learned skills that is rooted in tradition and um, that it operates through a kind of creative convergence rather than a separation of the mind and body. And this is argued uh, most recently in Richard Sennett's book, The Craftsman, um, which is currently flying off the shelves in uh, all good bookshops, where it's asserted that craft focuses on objective standards, on good work for its own sake, and what he calls a kind of a quality-driven approach. So craft work, craft-based work, is locally controllable in terms of pace and quality and represents a kind of freedom in that respect, a kind of non-alienated utopian labour. So what, I've called, what I suppose what I'm terming craft values and, and radical art values are perhaps not so simply defined or so starkly opposed and are often by necessity combined. But it's clear that the former remain undervalued compared to the latter, uh, certainly by Boltanski and Chappello, despite the fact that both are integral to the creative industry's labour process. And in fact, in the world of art and cultural production and in the discourse of the creative industries and in popular understandings of, of art, the idea of craft retains a very low status. And part of this, I think, stems from an enduring distaste and ambivalence towards the tradition of decorative or vernacular crafts in themselves, if you like. So common specific crafts, such as pottery and woodworking and uh, metalworking and so on, have long been contrasted unfavorably with art, with fine art, with conceptual art, with the tradition of the radical avant-garde. Craft has long been seen as a kind of worthy, functional, skill-based, kind of whole meal art, I suppose, um, and in comparison to modern conceptual art, craft's lack of articulacy, its kind of its lack of kind of intellectual kind of um, aspiration, I suppose, is seen to be both kind of embarrassing and shameful. And this stems, I would suggest, from kind of the modernist separation of having ideas from making objects. And this separation led to the possibility of art without craft. So, for example, when Marcel Duchamp exhibits his selected ready-mades, if you like, um, art without craft, the idea that the two practices were aligned could more quickly evaporate. And after modern art emerged, I suppose, um, as um, the craft historian Peter Dormer has noted, craft seemed so tedious because it was just so inelegant in its demands. It was prosaic and it was physical. It lacked, you know, the kind of conceptual kind of um, tools. So now to say that one pursues a craft, or more broadly in the context of creative industries, endorses craft values, and this is what I'm really talking about, rather than art radical artistic values, is to become kind of socially identified as marginal, part of a kind of a lost uh, tradition, part of disenfranchised art, part of an older world, if you like, a fixity uh, community 
tradition, a world of non-celebrity, in fact, a world of you know, slow objects rather than, if you like, fast ideas. So, of course, this is a world that appears at odds, not only with the, the conceptual thrust of modern art, but with the entire kind of rhetoric and discourse that surrounds the creative economy. If we see, as we've seen, that art and business now appear premised on individual creativity, rule-breaking, high-concept thinking, self-expression, and so on. Then craft, with its association of traditional authority, inherited skills, learned practices, uh, kind of uh, ingrained sociability, and you know what I would call as plain, simple obedience, seems to contradict the demands of the new, econ- new economy entirely. How am I doing? You've not been watching, have <laughs> Three minutes. Three minutes. Okay, right, okay, right. Okay, right, I, I think I can meet that. So, okay, right. Sorry to wait you up there, just. So, so while the market is happy to accept any kind of commitment to radical art, as long as it can be efficiently and profitably commodified, the market may be less happy, I would rather gingerly speculate, to tolerate a commitment to craft. Which is not to say that craft is not commodified, or that craft objects are not sold, or that craftsmanship does not sell in elite markets. I'm not talking about crafts in themselves. I'm talking about craft values. And it's arguable that when craft is considered as a kind of a political value, as an, a, an approach to the world, if you like, the, the kind of the other half of art, it can exert significant friction and drag on market relations. And this derives, I think, from its socially embedded character. Craft is slow, methodical, and historically kind of orientated. It kind of wrinkles its brow at the needy demands of fast capitalism. And in the creative industries, craft values, as I say, are both kind of prevalent and necessary, but we just don't really kind of talk about them very much. But in music and in film and in fashion and so on, whenever producers are kind of insisting upon that slow, methodical task of getting it right rather than getting it done, uh, when they're kind of paying more attention to the quality of the work and the kind of, uh, you know, developing the kind of the tradition and contributing to the, the culture of production and, and the kind of the seeking, if you like, the consecration of their peers rather than thinking about the kind of the end product and the kind of the profitability, then craft values are kind of in evidence. Okay, so, as I say, all I'm doing today really is trying to raise the question or of, of, of what is the basis on which we can conceive of an artist critique or an artistic critique in the creative industries uh, and in turn I suppose asking at the same time you know, if radical aspects of art appear ambiguous and uncertain as Bartask and Chappello kind of suggest then what value is there in thinking about a politics of craft essentially a politics of artistic production based on the values of slow artful and socially embedded production rather than the politics of radical, self, uh, radical subjectivity. Um, I think someone mentioned, in, was it inf- infernal innovation, perpetual futures, that kind of thing. A politics that's based on kind of slow craft time, it's based on kind of industrial, rejecting kind of industrial rhythms of time and attempting to kind of uh, impose a different kind of model of work-based uh, practice. So, of course, you know, this is not new, you know, I haven't just kind of invented this myself, as of course you realise, you know, craft production, whether it's been historically discussed in Marx or in Ruskin or in kind of William Morris, um, two mentions for him today, uh, or, you know, C. Wright Mills from the sociological literature, has always been driven by this kind of utopian impulse to empower workers, increase the social endowment of skill, promote psychological well-being and so on. Clearly, you know, the metaphysics of work have always provided craft with its moral core. Um, 
But I suppose now, building on some of the ground laid down by the likes of Alistair McIntyre in his book After Virtue, uh, written some 25 years ago, I think, and more recently Russell Keats' book Cultural Goods and the Limits of the Market, I would want to argue from a shift in some senses away from radical art and aesthetic justifications per se as a source of opposition to the economisation of creative work and to explore how the pursuit of internal rewards and the development of socially embedded economies of practice might act as a possible source of uh, dissent, if you like, in creative work. So my contention is that craft has always been with us, if you like, but has only occasionally, occasionally dared to speak its name. And in 1892, in the claims of decorative art, uh, Walter Crane called craft uh, a protest against the domination of our modern commercial and industrial system of production for profit. So the question I'm interested in is how far this, I suppose, might remain so. Okay, just one final summary then. Um, so the aesthetic justification that rails against economy and instrumental work remains valid, I think. But as Boltansky and Chappello illustrate, this has been somewhat undermined by the way in which capital has transformed work in such a way is there a, that it appears to offer its own distinctive aesthetic satisfactions, you know, the enticements to come into work that you were kind of talking about. But the artistic critique in creative industries does not simply derive from aesthetic justifications or modern aesthetic justifications. My art is pure, my freedom won't be compromised, that kind of thing. But it can derive from values inherent to the act of work in itself, the production of art according to the principles and values of craft systems. So while capitalist work can also offer certain craft satisfactions as well, craft enticements like purportedly offering more skilled, more autonomous work, reflexive work, you know, project teams and so on, at this present time we might want to ask whether these initiatives may be harder to effectively govern um, since traditional craft values, more so perhaps than radical art values, may now be inimical uh, to the demands of fast, borderless, um, disembedded capitalism. I shall stop there. Okay, thanks Chris, yeah. um, yeah, I, just, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, agreed. <laughs> um, I, the same things, um, but I, I, um, I was interested in national. No, <laughs> um, I was I was interested in the connection between what you were saying about craft and um, uh, theories of creativity, obviously, but also Ros's presentation as well, because you know by, by talking about creativity as craft rather than art, you, know, you get into a different mode of working as well, don't you? You start to get towards those sort of the older guys who are not that impressed by the kind of fast-moving, exciting, you know, viney, hip, groovy culture, and just say, right, I'm going home now. And and I see that with my friends who are sort of in their 40s now, and they'll say, you know, they're writers or they're, they're making games or whatever it is, and they'll say, you know, well... I've done, it, I've done all that stuff now. I can I can make the decisions now, and it's it's a bit like the difference between within industries. You get between say the you know the camera people or the technicians in theatres who you know actors and directors all want to work all night, and the technicians say no, we're going home. And and so maybe the, by, by you know by getting away from that sort of mythology of genius and individual brilliant artistic creativity towards the recognition of the, the role of craft, you can kind of you can unpick some of that slightly self-destructive mythology that lots of, I suppose, young people like me have when they when they move into um, yeah. those worlds. Yeah, yeah, you can, and you know, it's it is a kind of a certain demystification of, of the creative process to kind of root it in um, actual tradition, practices, skills, and modes of modes of working, and just kind of take away that kind of gloss, which is why I suppose it's kind of been seen as. Um, kind of a, you know, a, a, a bit dull, yeah. Whole meal yeah. art kind of thing. Yeah. You know, he wants to talk about you know 
yeah, the, the mechanics of it when you can celebrate the kind of the transcendental qualities of the, of the work mm. kind of thing. So yeah, there is that kind of uh, uh, sense that you can kind of um, um, you know demystify the creative process in that way. But of course, for some people, you know. That, that, that very process of demystification is hugely problematic because you know that kind of grounds it in the uh, you know in the, in the mundane world of the everyday, which is, is you know traditionally the sphere which art has said that we you know we, we can elevate beyond. So yeah. you know, it cuts yeah. both ways that one. So the grumpy technician is the last resistance to capitalism. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. A couple of things. Um, I think you have to write about the survival of craft values in a kind of political sense. Like, I, I did some work last year on festivals. Some people were working, putting on music festivals and all sorts of festivals. And what really struck me about it was the persistence of um, what I thought of as coming from a community arts tradition. I hadn't made connection with craft, but coming from a community arts tradition of the work is not about me; it's about us. Yeah. And one of the people describing um, a core that she'd run, she'd just gone and make costumes for carnivals. And she said the worst thing that anyone could say at the end of her course was that was my idea. And this, this whole notion of kind of collective production of ideas seems to be really persistent mm. in those kinds of sort of performing arts and things like that. And I, and even strangely enough, it survives in, in elements of kind of corners of, of celebrity culture you really wouldn't expect it, which is the classic post-match interview with a footballer where he says, <laughs> it wasn't me, it's a team. And the need to say that is really, really strong, it seems to be even kind of, you yeah. um, know. But the other point I want to say is whether, and I can't believe I'm saying this because normally it's sort of some someone went to Wikipedia and want to lie down and die, but you know, <laughs> whether that persists in these kind of types of open innovation where you get lots of people collectively producing things yeah. which are not about themselves but are about the collective and whether yeah, yeah. space for craft values in that really. Yeah, I mean, yes, I suppose there is. And, you know, if you read Richard Sennett's book, you know, The Craftsman, he calls it, uh, you know, there's a, there's a great kind of eulogisation of kind of the Linux community in there and, you know, the kind of open source kind of movement in the yeah. sense that, you know, the individual is by and large kind of uh, invisible uh, and you know the goods of the kind of the community seem to take privilege, and you know, so that's his modern example of you know the, the you know the, the the medieval kind of goldsmith is, is is the kind of Linux community. So I suppose yeah, there is. A Damn, so Richard said I have the idea first. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is really important stuff, Mark, and I know it builds on you know what you talk about in your excellent book, which you know I commend to everyone here. It's a really important book about, about cultural work. Um, and, you know, you use Mac and Terry and Keith there, and I can see you building on that here. Um, but um, I don't know, this might seem like theoretical, pedantic <coughs> quibbling, but actually I don't think it is really. It's, the, it's the, the, your choice to build this up around a critique of Boltanski and Schiphelup actually seems a bit premature because I, w I just want to defend them and commend their book <laughs> alongside your book because I think it's a, a really important book um, because it's like an attempt to analyse um, why we're all so much more bloody conformist than we were 40 years ago and uh, I suppose this is a way in which I might also uh, respectfully disagree with the gentleman who spoke earlier and, and said that he thought the spirit of punk was alive and well in, in, in these new media companies, and uh, you know I'm sure in, in, on good days it might feel like that. But it's, both Tansky and Chipello offer a pretty massive amount of evidence to suggest that that's not not really 
what might be going on at least in, in the economy more generally mm. um, and the artistic critique in a way your defence of craft is, is consistent with the discussion of the uh, decline not death of artistic critique it's um, artistic critique is almost a metaphorical term really for you know that strand of thinking that hits the effects of capitalism whatever you want to call it that's about authenticity alienation disenchantment um, I mean you may be right to say that they missed the Richard Sennett stroke Mark Banks trick of seeing potential in craft yeah, I think you got there first but well yeah but um but you know they still do a hell of a lot yeah, besides sure. that yeah yeah I think yeah. so that's a quibble really that I don't think you need to critique yeah. Patalski and, uh, and yeah, Chicago I mean, yeah I suppose I'm saying it's a kind of a sin of omission on their part rather than I fundamentally disagree with the kind of standard thing because you know in the latter part of that book there is a kind of attempt to kind of retrieve uh, retrieve on that one so yeah yeah I, I, I agree with what you're saying yeah. but, but they do miss it out can I say something <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah, I think uh, I also. Th- I mean, I, again, I like the critique, but you also you've got to be careful to give not to give up, give away t- too much to that division because there's there's two stories going on in well, well in Voltansky and what you've said, and what one is that the artistic and the cult- social critique bump along together yeah, in different yeah, ways, yeah, and they yeah, come yeah. along and move together, and, and that's something I, I think we haven't really got our heads around. Um, I'm, I'm always thinking of. Williams's book, The Politics of Modernism, it's 19, I think it's one of the last ones he wrote, uh, where he's still saying how how utterly opposed a lot of the modernist movements were to social movements, uh, and then you know how how the two, there's a real lot of negotiation going on there, and and it, and it, even in the 1970s, you know, you get the idea, the idea of modernist art is still somehow. Uh, you know, a bourgeois art, it's bourgeois, you know, decadent bourgeois art. So that there's a real conflict between the two that I think yeah, Boltanik yeah. and Chapello are, are working on in some ways, and I think that colours their eventual jettison of, of, of it. So that's that story. But then there's also the story within art itself, and you know, I mean, you mentioned Morris, but there's also Eric Gill, but there's also the Bauhaus, there's yeah, also yeah. in some ways Le Corbusier. Uh, you know, there's a whole strand of uh, and Russian modernism, a whole strand within modernist politics where they have attempted to engage yeah, with sure. the everyday and things. And yeah, yeah. So that I'm, I'm, I am saying it's more complicated, which of course you agree. But also, I think that we we need to look at. I think you're right. We need to look at where that distinction is. Um, I remember yeah. just the final thing is just a little thing of um, what's his name, Terry Eagleton. Um, said in the London Review of Books quite an interesting one on Peter Conrad's book on creation where he, he says you know the thing about creativity is it's also about self-creation it's a Nietzschean self-creation and that's it's that that takes out of the social in, in the way you say it really takes it out of the social and it well comes a cropper I think he says it in a better way than that and and it's you know you get movements in like uh, what's his name the French guy uh, uh, relational aesthetics is a big movement yeah, yeah, yeah. of getting aesthetics back in back in there so it's a it's yeah, a yeah. complex thing I think but th- there's I suppose it's to say there's more you know there's more going yeah. on that way yeah, yeah I, mean, I didn't mean to you know as I <coughs> briefly mentioned I, you know I didn't want to present such a stark distinction between art and craft and, and the history of how craft has been considered in relation to art of course you know 
the Bauhaus is very much and others are very much a part of a tradition of trying to combine the two and that kind of thing but I think you're right about the the, the kind of the, the attempt to kind of recouple the social and the artistic critique in a way and you know in, in Boltanski and Chappelle they talk about you know the, the social critique with its kind of concerns about security and kind of you know, justice and kind of equality kind of pottering along and then there seems to be this other stream called the artistic critique which is about alienation and freedom and you know there's a coming together in the 60s and, and a kind of incendiary moment when that happens and you know on a much more mundane level, you can think about you know politics of craft as an attempt to recombine a social and a kind of an artistic mm-hmm. critique in that way. And, it, and you know, a book that you know, I, I, you know, I still think is a very good book and perhaps doesn't get talked about as much as it should. Is you know, like when Howard Becker in Art Worlds, where he's talking about you know the idea of the artist craftsman, as he calls, and this kind of fusion of the kind of the, the socially aware, socially informed kind of artistic. Uh, a, a, a producer, and you know, in that book, there's a very kind of eloquent distinct description, I think, of the way in which, you know, thinking about artistic production is not just about the kind of you know modern art with a capital M, but you know, about the kind of you know the actual socially embedded kind of uh, nature of, of, of artistic production and how it relies upon a kind of a, a kind of inherited kind of repertoire of uh, of moods, styles, techniques, skills, you know, and I think that book in some way is a kind of Maybe has already said some of the things that I wanted to say in terms of recombining, you know, the social and, and the uh, artistic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I just want to say I thought it was, I, I think it's a great part, and I want to come right in behind it. I think it's a really, really important, important concept. It strikes me that one couple of ways in which a couple of dimensions of that. Um, which you probably start thinking, maybe you've already thought about it, I don't know, but one is the relationship to the commodity form. And it seems to me one of the points about craft is that it's not very easily commodifiable because it isn't associated with production lines. Hmm. Yet at the same time, paradoxically enough, craft is about utility. It's about yeah. producing utilitarian goods which are, as it were, extra aesthetic. They have a function which goes beyond the non-utility of aesthetic goods. So that, that's quite important. That, 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 that's a sort of, there's a certain aesthetic of, or a certain ethic of humility about that, which yes. I like too. Yeah. Um, and then the further thing, which is related to Justin's point, is that, of course, the whole point about the artistic critique is that it's eminently com- commodifiable. You know, rock music was nothing but the artistic crit- critique turned into stuff that really sold shit shed loads, you know. So there's a kind of sense in which, um, in, in this context, it's a really useful dialectical other, if you like, um, to the artistic critique. So I think, I think it's really important. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. I guess maybe where I'm, I'm actually a little bit confused is, is um, I wonder I wonder about um, sort of I wonder about craft and the production of luxury commodities. Yeah, yeah. Actually, and that's where I start to feel a little bit uncomfortable yeah, sure. in terms of like, thinking about the resistant possibilities of craft, you know, and, and luxury commodities in relation yeah. to the kind of lifestyle industry, you know, nice furniture, um, <laughs> that sort of thing, um, cooking shows. You know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Can you speak to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, like I kind of mentioned, you know, the, the defense of craft values is not necessarily defense of the production of, you know, luxury craft markets in a way. That's not, not really what I was kind of intending. But yeah, I mean, of course, there's that kind of contradiction embedded in that is that whereas craft has a kind of a low, low status in some quarters, at the same time, it's kind of, it's relative obscurity also gives it a kind of value in another sense. And, you know, it, it, people will pay good money for high quality crafted Kind of yeah, luxury, rather than mass-produced, rather than things. mass-produced objects. So yeah. yeah, so you know, in that sense, there is a kind of um, uh, ambiguity embodied in, in that, which I, you know, I recognise, of course. I just had a really quick comment about um, Adorno wrote a short essay about, I think it's something about do-it-yourself, where he sets up craft 
and craft values in opposition to doing it yourself. Which I think right, okay. interestingly, some people say because he says use example of cleaning the house or doing some handiwork. So if you do it yourself, you don't have the more for that you won't have the skills of repeat work, etc., etc. So you do a bad job, right. and you're better off getting somebody who's a craftsman who's got these craft values. And so he says that interestingly, get a professional. <laughs> it's someone who does. It's an interesting argument, but it's sets up. Craft in a different opposition yeah. with the commodity okay, front. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with that, but I should. It's in the culture industries, routage project, And of course, while we're on these, of course, not just Adela, but also Heidegger, it, it, you know, that's your other route. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Heidegger is firmly of the opinion that, you know, making of a pot was a, the, most, the highest form of creative activity that you could do. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's. Uh, some would agree and some would disagree. And of course, of course, the big problem with craft values is that they're open to exp- you know, all kinds of political uh, unpleasantness in a way because they, you know, they're both attractive in their extreme form to the right and the left in a way. So yeah. you know, you have to be careful with you know idealising craft values. You know, the left like the associations with community and solidarity. The extreme right like the kind of you know the kind of authenticity of it and the kind of the connection with tradition. So yeah, I mean, you know, let's not be. I'm not, I'm not, again, too carried away with the idea of craft, because it's all kinds of, yeah, you know. I mean, what, the, the, um, uh, of course, the, the other thing is, in, in terms of the, um, um, I don't think of the name, um, uh, Lush and Lurie's recent thing, where they actually link, I mean, the use of Duchamp's ready-made, you know, that uncoupling from the object yeah. is, is, in fact, you know, they, they trace a direct line to the organisation of brands, almost. Yeah. You know, basically the, yeah. the non-object yeah, nature yeah. Of, 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 of a lot of production. You know, you d- you're not buying the yeah. running shoe; you're buying some yeah, sort absolutely. of idea of it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think you know, it's, it's interesting that that again that line of thought between you know uncoupling from the object yeah, yeah. Uh, and will. You know, I think for craft, it's something to do with. Something to do with the object, or yeah. but also the object as a socially constructed form of work practice and work meaning that's somehow in, uh, you know embedded so- socially in some way. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's very much what it's about. I think. Right, yeah, definitely. So, you know, yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, yeah, and it's that kind of you know orientation around the object and you know the focus on the object that you know slows things down in a way in terms of that, that process that you kind of described. Mm. Any more for any more? You're just trying to keep me here so you don't have to do a summary. Well, we've only got five minutes. Have we? Yes. We've only got five minutes. Right, okay. uh, (laughs) Well, no, we have to leave at 5.15 because we've all got those things to And uh, Yes, I've cleverly got out of my summary of all those important arguments, which I'm not going to attempt to do now. Um, I'm going to close close us down. Um, you're at home, you're at Craftsman, obviously. <laughs> I am, I'm the grumpy technician. I've got my brown coat there and my brush at the side, you know. So, uh, well, we've got five. Anyone like to say anything in the concluding five minutes? No pressure. No. Right, good. Right. I want to thank all the speakers. Uh, I think it's been really interesting and you know, come from a whole different range of, of ideas. But I think there's been a core, you know, co- obviously core concerns there. Um, thank Mark for organising it. Uh, I did 
did a bit of it, but he did most of it. I was the conceptual genius who came in for two <laughs> seconds, saying, yeah, that's fine, and Mark swept up. So, uh, so th- thanks for that, and uh, for our host here at the Open University. Yeah, okay. You got out of that one nicely. Well done. Uh, well, can I just say, um, you may have noticed that a uh, very skilled craftsman at the back has been filming this all day. Um, the reason being is that, as Marie said this morning, there was quite a lot of demand for places, and unfortunately we've only got a small room. Um, um, so the plan is that, as long as nobody objects, is that the, today's proceedings, the papers, will be um, put on the web, um, publicly available, um, uh, as soon as possible. I'm, I need to talk to the speakers about the ins and outs of that, but all being well, um, within a week or so, um, we should have uh, today's presentation available for public viewing. So if you do know people who wanted to come couldn't make it, or like Chris, you've got students who wanted to come but there wasn't any room, then they'll be able to, what does the BBC call it, watch again, look, listen again. Yeah, I think, yeah, 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 yeah. it's a bit like iPlayer, but yeah, more yeah. glamorous. Making the unmissable, unmissable. Well, yeah, we're, we're making the missable, <laughs> missable or something. Okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, to reiterate, Justin's thanks for everyone for attending. Um, we will finish now. Um, if you have got to go and get a train uh, or you need to find out how to get back to the train station, I can give people taxi numbers and tell them how to get home because, you know, we are in the, bit of the middle of nowhere here. Um, but if people want to hang around, the, there is a bar called, uh, in a building called the Beale Suite, which is a kind of like an airport lounge-style bar. Um, it's not very nice, but it's the only one we've got. Um, it's just I can direct people. Huh? Uh, it's the only one we've got um, so if people are not in a rush then we maybe we'll go for a drink and you know unwind a bit but for those of you who do need to get off I can help you get cows and things like that uh, the only other thing to say is thank you very much for coming and I hope you know it's been worth your while